You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season four, episode one, How to Fix a Broken Record with spoken word artist Amina Brown. If we're going to create, you know, in the truest sense of that word, we have to see ourselves and the world in this holistic way. We have to see the ugly and the beautiful in order to reflect it back. That's part of our job in the world. I think creatives are truth tellers and we get to tell the truth in this way that is sometimes with words and sometimes without. It is sometimes a truth that finds people standing in some art gallery somewhere or staring at graffiti on this abandoned building. I mean, that's the beauty of what we're able to do. Amina Brown is a poet, speaker, author, and event host. Named one of Rejuvenate Magazine's top 40 under 40 changemakers, Amina is the author of five spoken word albums and two nonfiction books, Breaking Old Rhythms and her latest release, How to Fix a Broken Record. She has performed and spoken at events across the nation, such as Creativity World Forum, IF Gathering, as well as toured with musical artist Gunger and author Ann Voskamp. For an additional interview with Amina Brown on the artist and money management, you can visit our creative collective at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to follow us on Instagram and leave us a review on iTunes. This is my season premiere conversation with spoken word artist Amina Brown on how to fix a broken record. Well, Amina, thank you so much for joining me on Makers and Mystics. I'm really excited to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I'm really excited to introduce you to the audience of Makers and Mystics, and I'm really excited to talk about the book that you just released called How to Fix a Broken Record. And um, yeah, why don't you tell us some about that book and, and about what we can expect to find in it? Yeah, How to Fix a Broken Record is a spiritual memoir of the first few years of my 30s. So it's a very learned time mm-hmm. <laughs> as the first few years of your 30s always are, I understand. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to uh, talk about some of the lessons that I was learning uh, in my life and about God. And I wanted to pair that with music and how uh, vinyl records specifically uh, teach me a lot about God and teach me a lot about the messages in my own soul, you know, the music, good and bad in my own soul. So it's definitely a book of storytelling and music reviews mm-hmm. <laughs> all combined into one. Yeah, I noticed that at the beginning of most of the chapters, you had a short segment on a certain record that had inspired you or influenced you. Tell me about that. Yeah, I uh, actually was reading several books over the two years that the idea for this book was coming to my mind. So I went through a period of time where I was reading a lot of comedic writers So I read Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Issa Rae and Mindy Kaling. So I loved uh, the form of their books. I also read uh, Questlove's 
book, Mo Meta Blues, which was just a fantastic, not only just a memoir, but really a, a music memoir, really connecting the music and the timeline of the music to sort of his formation just as a person and also as an artist. So I really loved the sections in his book. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not saying in any way that my book did justice to what Questlove did in his, but he had these longer periods of time where he would sort of chronicle the music that had come out at the time of his life that he's about to write about, the music he was listening to at that time. And I really liked how that sort of kept the beat in a sense of kind of letting people know what the time of his life was like. And I also read a book uh, by Rob Sheffield called Love is a Mixtape. And this was also a memoir um, that was marked in time by the mixtapes he and his girlfriend, then wife, and then he becomes a widow. Um, so you're watching sort of the mixtapes again, mark time in the book. So I wanted to have some albums to kind of mark time with the different subject matter I was talking about. And I at one other life was a music journalist. And so it was really nice to be able to sort of bring some of that part that I used to love doing to bring that back to comment on an album. Why in the history of music is that album important, but also to be able to comment on why that album was important to me, as I know everybody has those albums they can think of that really mark a season of time in your life, you know? Mm-hmm. How has vinyl influenced your spiritual journey? You said earlier that vinyl played a big role even in your relationship with God. I'm not sure exactly how you worded that. Um, I think one of the things that I had to learn again, listening to vinyl versus, you know, what I had been doing even with, you know, listening to CDs and then when CDs weren't really a thing and you're sort of more so listening to music on your phone or you know, in some other capacity where really it has no end. Mm -hmm. Like you could have, you could create a playlist for a party and your party is going to be two hours. You have a four hour playlist. Like the music, you know, it's never mm -hmm. really going to stop for you. And returning to listening to vinyl records really forces you to deal with the silence because it's always coming mm -hmm. and it's coming in, um, coming to you more quickly than it would with other methods that you would use to listen to music. You know, you listen to a vinyl record and it's going to get to the end mm -hmm. and you almost have to notice again that it has gotten quiet. And I think that's uh, an interesting spiritual rhythm too. I yeah. think a part of uh, growing closer to God or, or growing in our relationship with God is to be able to deal with that silence, to embrace it, to find our own state of being <laughs> Mm -hmm. I think silence does that for us. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the first moments I noticed when I went, huh, you know, how do I feel about that when the record stops playing? Does it make me uncomfortable? Does it make me realize how anxious I really am or how much I'm really worried about life mm -hmm. when I don't have the noise, you know? Well, you mentioned that you were a music journalist at one time, and I know now a lot of what you're doing is spoken word and you're writing and you're also public speaking. How did you transition from being a music journalist into the realm of spoken word? Well, for a long time, I just thought that spoken word was going to be a hobby, <laughs> um, which I still in certain ways have a little bit of that thought underneath it all. I feel like if everything in my life were to change and I were to stop doing spoken word performing as a job, I would still do it as a hobby mm -hmm. because I love it that much. I will always write poems, whether I 
get paid or not. So I think because I always imagined that this would not be a job and there were very few spoken word poets I knew who were making a living doing this, I started going the route of trying some journalistic writing and I'm just a music lover and love shows. And I think it kind of started out as a hustle because that was sort of an easy way to get into a concert for free Mm -hmm. was to write about it for a publication. (laughs) And so then I realized, oh gosh, I really enjoy doing this. And that turned into interviewing artists. And so I actually was planning on pursuing that as a career. I was going to move from Atlanta to New York and pound the pavement, trying to get published in some New York publications. And my spoken word career happened to take off at that time. Mm. So that's sort of how um, how that happened. I ended up just getting a lot of uh, really great opportunities to be a part of events, to collaborate with some other artists. And, you know, as many artists know, you sort of play the one stage and other stages kind of opened up from there. And I looked up and went, oh, I don't have a time to uh, work a side job Mm -hmm. anymore. I actually have to really dedicate myself to doing this. And I think I had to learn a lot of good and hard lessons about uh, how being a full-time artist meant becoming an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So I have become artist and businesswoman, which I enjoy. Yeah, that's amazing. Isn't it interesting, the time that we live in, it's almost prerequisite that if you're going to be a full-time artist, you do have to be an entrepreneur. You know, you do have to have that sense of business. And I know for me, I tend to be so right-brained that doesn't always come the most intuitive, but I think so many of the artists that I talk to, even on Makers and Mystics here, have had to you know, go to the boot camp of learning how not only to cultivate your creative side, but to learn how to be a business-minded person as well. And I'm curious for you, did that come natural or is that something you had to work on? No, that did not come natural for me <laughs> at all. And I, I think I wrote about this in a small amount on how to fix a broken record, but, you know, I'm I'm from a generation of people who were, you know, we were kids uh, in the 90s. That was sort of our teenage time was in the 90s. So really the 90s was a decade where you were watching people get jobs as artists. They were getting signed to record labels and getting these massive advances. And, you know, so it was it was believable at that point. Like, oh, that could totally happen to me. Like I could totally be performing on some stage and, you know, insert name of famous person (laughs) that might walk in and be like, oh, I would love to pay her like five million dollars to just sit at her house in pajamas and write her poems, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think for a lot of artists in this uh, generation of us that were sort of coming of age in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was this rude awakening. Mm -hmm. No entity is coming for you. No one is waiting with that million dollar whatever. And, you know, I did not come from parents who had a lot of money that could sort of give me that seed money, so to speak. Uh, So anything that was going to happen was between God and uh, whatever hard work my hands could do, Mm -hmm. you know? And so Mm -hmm. I do think that uh, came across to me uh, in a difficult way (laughs) at first. I was like, (laughs) oh man, oh man, this is like about to involve some hard work and some struggle, you know? (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. But once I had to get my head in the game about that, 
then it really became more a thought of how much do I believe in what it is I'm doing? Um, am I willing to invest my time and my money and my resources into doing this? You know, do I believe it's worth doing that? And I think that's a powerful question for any creative to answer. what you said on the very first page of your book because you were talking about your family and you said my great-grandmother picked cotton and worked in a tobacco factory so that my grandmother could work at a hospital so that my mom could become a nurse so that I could become a poet I'm curious did you find that your family life nurtured the creative in you absolutely my mom's side of the family is just a family full of storytellers mm -hmm. so I grew up watching, you know, in very informal settings, no one giving, you know, a lot of words to this is what's happening, you know, but getting older and realizing, oh, I'm watching all the time my uncle be this orator, you know, in the family recounting the stories and watching my grandmother as now the oldest living matriarch on my mom's side of the family sort of recount to us two and three generations that uh, some of them who we didn't even get to meet, you know. So I think just growing up really around a lot of amazing storytellers influenced me in so many ways. And my dad's side of the family full of musicians and preachers. Yeah. So growing up around a lot of music and music that no one learned in a way that they were formally trained, that they learned inside of a church building and at home, learning how to play, you know, my dad learned how to play what he could hear, you know, those things. So I think all of that sort of family osmosis, in a way, is a part of what gave me great appreciation for, for creative work. Has your spiritual life always blended with your creative life? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, you know, started kind of piddling around with a little writing uh, as a young person, but I became a believer. Uh, and Jesus when I was 12 years old. And it is interesting to me that that is sort of what I can mark as the beginning of writing more mm -hmm. and being more interested in the arts. And I, I also grew up in a church that was very art supportive. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my first times performing on stage, speaking in front of a crowd, were all in my church. Mm -hmm. You know, dance and poetry and speech, all those things really were not a school activity for me. They were church activities for me. So I think that helped me early on to not feel like spirituality and creativity were separated. I think that played a huge role in sort of those things being very similar to me. Jesus receives all the honor, the honor of one who is mighty, great because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch because he embraced the company of the lowest he took on his shoulders the sins of many he died without a thought for his own welfare he was buried like a criminal even though he'd never hurt a soul or said one word that wasn't true it was our pains he carried our imperfections all the things wrong with us. We did our own thing, went our own way. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures, yet God laid on him everything we've done wrong. There he was, 
held on the cross with nails in wrists and feet. And before he breathed his last, committed his spirit into the hands of his father, he cried out, my God, Father, Abba, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Pierced, beaten, bruised, insulted, abused, mocked, ripped, torn, rejected, betrayed by his closest friends in exchange for our peace in place of our sin, in exchange for our healing, accused of living a lie when he was the truth, but he offered no words in his own defense. Did anyone really know what was happening? From prison and trial, they led him away to his death, but who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? This is what God had in mind all along. It was God's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The plan was that Jesus give himself as an offering for sin and God's plan deeply prospered through his son. And when Jesus saw all that would be accomplished by his anguish, he was pleased. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. For God so loved every face, every name, every heart. God so loved every life that he gave Jesus, his one and only son, to die a death that we deserve to die, our mortal life in exchange for his eternal one. I want to ask you, because in your book, you have two chapters on the influence of social media. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I love the way that, you know, one of them is social media is the best thing that ever happened to me. And the very next chapter is social media is the worst thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> and I can agree with both of those sentiments, but tell me how social media has played a role in your development as an artist. You know, I think one of the reasons I said it's the best thing is I can be a fan on social media. There are quite a few artists and creatives that I love their work. And before social media, you know, for those that were performing artists, you would only hope they were coming to your city where you could see them in a show or something like that. And for, you know, other artists, like visual artists and things like this, you were maybe hope an exhibit was going to come to where you were, that you could see that. Maybe you'd find that in a book or something. So to be able to be connected to so many artists and creatives that inspire me is is a great thing to me. That's that's definitely a part of what informs my process. And and I have written some poems that were inspired by something I saw <laughs> on social media too, you know, where I was like, oh, huh, that's an interesting idea. I can't say that happens all the time, mm -hmm. but sometimes it does, you know, particularly in the ways that social media is just, you know, connect connecting us and reconnecting us with all these people. Yeah. And I think also for me as a traveling performing artist, it's been a great way for me to stay connected to people I meet at shows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people that I met at different events. And, you know, when I'm returning to a place, there's a way for someone to on Twitter go, oh, I mean, it was so great meeting you last night, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. like getting a chance to connect to them, whereas we may not get a chance to talk in person at the event. Mm -hmm. So those are reasons why I... I love it. I've also been able to connect with a lot of other leaders and creatives just personally. Mm -hmm. So some online friends have become in real life friends mm -hmm. and we would not have been able to become friends at some conference where you're going to get maybe 10 minutes mm -hmm. to talk to each other, you know? Yeah. 
So what's the downside then? <laughs> well, distraction. <laughs> <laughs> you can obviously spend hours on social media not creating, mm. not, you know, doing your soul work <laughs> and the other things that would help you in your creative work. So distraction is a big part of it. I think comparison too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, which, you know, which if we didn't have social media, we would be staring at our neighbor's house or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. There's always going to be that because we're yeah. human beings. But I just think social media heightens our ability to do that just because we have more people yeah. <laughs> that we have access to. Oh, wow. Like, that's a really nice living room. Mm. Wow. Mm. She's got like real couches in her living room. Mm. We don't even have like real adult looking you know like you just your mind starts or seeing how someone's work might be really well received on social media yeah and depending on where you are that day and your insecurity if you are celebrating that or if you feel like that person's success is an indictment against you Mm -hmm. or is speaking to you about the success that you can or can't achieve there are just all those like pitfalls i think on social media where your insecurities can play this big role in it. And I think too, sometimes it can tempt us to feel like we have to present something that's perfect Mm -hmm. or um, present something that looks like it's successful all the time. And those of us who are creatives know that that's just not Mm -hmm. how it works (laughs) being a creative. You're going to make a lot of things and some of those things suck. (laughs) (laughs) That's a part of it. You can't make amazing things and great things if you don't make some things that suck, you know, but there's not like an Instagram for that where you're going to (laughs) put that. We should have that for artists where it was just like, you know, Instagram for the things that suck and you can just put on there. Here's my really bad rough draft. Mm, You know, you just put those things on there. That would actually help us. We should have like or maybe we could have a day like that, where it's like today is the day we're posting ugly things we've made. Yes. <laughs> well, this is interesting because in the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective that I host with the patrons of the podcast, we've been talking about the five creativity killers, and comparison and distraction are two of them that we've talked about. And one of the other ones we just started kind of hitting on here, and that's perfectionism. Mm. And um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that because I know in your book as well, you said that you are a recovering perfectionist. So tell me more about that. Well, first of all, therapy, because it's important. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's the only way you can become recovering perfectionist is to go to therapy, everyone. Um, I think, you know, my husband says to me, which, you know, whenever you are in even a friendship or any relationship with someone that gets close enough to you where they can see your stuff, right? They can see all your things that are really great and all your things that are just not super great either. I remember when my husband and I first got married, he would say to me, you know, there are these parts of your detailed mind that are wonderful and amazing and useful. And then he would say, there are these other parts to it that I know are hard for you, but you can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. And I would never want to throw away 
or want to see you, you know, throw away these parts that are so great for the parts that are a struggle. And so perfectionism for me is the the other side of the detailed part of my brain that is able to write a story. Mm-hmm. In order for me to write a story, my brain has to pick up on the other parts of people's conversations that are outside of the words they say. Mm-hmm. And my brain has to be able to, you know, pay attention to people's facial expressions and sort of even picking up on the things that are missing from mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. That as creatives, we need that part. Mm-hmm. Well, the weakness of that is when you can't accept anything if all the details are not right. The weakness of that is feeling like you have to be in control of everything that happens at any time with mm-hmm. anyone, including mm-hmm. yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I think a part of it is, I don't all the way want to say embracing my perfectionism, but understanding its roots and where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And not doing so much villainizing of myself, mm-hmm. but just understanding like this is how the strength comes out and this is how the weakness comes out. And when you're in the weakness, you lean more towards perfectionism. But when you're in the strength, you create some beautiful things mm-hmm. by almost using the same thing that your brain's doing when it's focusing on all the stuff you messed up or when it's focusing on all the ways that you think you are not like whoever it is you think you should be like, you know? So I think for me, it is this ongoing struggle, I would say, but also trying to be loving to Mm -hmm. myself Mm -hmm. and that I learned how to be a perfectionist as a way of surviving, whether that was due to my family upbringing or due to my place in society or whatever that was. And how can I be loving to myself Mm-hmm. while encouraging my perfectionist side to not get so caught up in all the things that are left undone. The name of your book again, How to Fix a Broken Record. It seems like a lot of this memoir is about you really coming to a place of self-acceptance and really come into a place of being kind and being loving to yourself and allowing yourself to be in process and allowing yourself to be authentic in who you are. And I think that's such a beautiful and needful thing, especially for creatives and artists. Yeah, I think that's so important because I think if we're going to create, you know, in the truest sense of that word, we have to see ourselves and the world in this holistic way. We have to see the ugly and the beautiful in order to reflect it back. So I think that is important for us to be able to hold the tension of that as creatives. That's a part of our job in the world. I think creatives are truth tellers and we get to tell the truth in this way that is sometimes with words and sometimes without. It is sometimes a truth that finds people standing in some art gallery somewhere or staring at graffiti on this abandoned building. I mean, that's the beauty of what we're able to do. And I think that is worth it. In your book, you did two consecutive chapters, one on the topic of failure, and then right after that, you did a chapter on success. And I would love to hear your thoughts on both of those topics. You know, I think I think in the book, I wanted to acknowledge before we get to the failure can help you rise. Mm-hmm. 
failure is a part of what helps us grow. I just wanted to acknowledge like failure sucked. Mm -hmm. It hurts really bad. Depending on how it happens to you, it's embarrassing. It can make you feel shame Mm -hmm. and guilt that are not quickly resolved. I feel like I wanted to say that because I think sort of in our, you know, corporate entrepreneur speak, it's become like fail forward, (laughs) fail towards your dream. And it's like, let's take a step back and just discuss that sometimes you have to be depressed for two years Mm -hmm. after failing before you can get to the, oh, I might write a book about that. I might become a business guru because I, you know, totally lost my business or my house or my marriage or whatever those things are. And I also wanted to write about the fact that failure is, doesn't just happen to us in a business sense, mm-hmm. you know, that we can fail even in our personal lives mm-hmm. um, and how that impacts us and how that speaks to us about who we are, even when it shouldn't, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I still hate failure. <laughs> I just hate it. I just, <laughs> I, if I could do everything to avoid it, I totally would. But I think that's a part of healing that perfectionist part of us as creatives is that we're we're freaking human beings. Yeah. We're going to mess up. We're going to miss it. We're going to do the best we can sometimes. And even in the best we can, even with our best intentions, things are not going to go according to plan. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go the way we wanted. And we can survive that mm-hmm. with the right people in our lives and having a relationship with God, we can survive that, but that's a part of it that we're going to mess up. I even was talking, speaking of therapy, was talking with my therapist not too long ago, and I was telling her about some situation. I kept saying, I just really don't want to disappoint them. And she just looked at me and she said, you will. Mm. And as basic as that should be, it was a revelation to me. Like I need to accept that because it's almost like sometimes with failure, we're we're fighting it so hard, like it's not going to happen at some point. And it just is. And it's almost like if we can accept that that's going to be a part of our journey and be present in the grief that will come after that mm-hmm. and in the hard feelings that we will have after that, we can we can survive it, but it will come. And we should prepare ourselves as much as we can for that. Mm-hmm. And then I think, too, sometimes when we've experienced failure in certain ways, it helps us to rethink, well, what in the world do I think success is? You know, if we fail to meet the numbers, whatever the numbers are in our field, whether that's sales or people who, you know, attended the event, people who bought the whatever, you know, um, if numbers are the way we're going to measure that when we don't hit the numbers, then we have to ask ourselves, is that my proper measurement now? Mm-hmm. And so I've had to make some of those decisions, which in certain ways, Stephen, mean I just don't make as much money as I could. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and some days I'm like, that's right. I'm keeping my soul. Mm. And other days, like, this mortgage got to be paid, though. Mm. Let me rethink that, you know. <laughs> so that's hard. Sometimes I'm, in, I'm thinking about what success is for me. And there are some things I do not want to compromise on with that. And that means there are some opportunities I don't take, mm-hmm. some things I don't say yes to, and some checks I don't get paid. Mm. And sometimes I have regrets about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> During a broke season, I'm like, what were you thinking? You know, <laughs> but when I can go to bed at night, when I have peace about it, yeah. 
when I feel like the decisions I've made honor the people I come from, mm-hmm. honor those I'm in community with, honor marginalized voices. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that feels like a better success to me than if I were to measure that on numbers alone. Yeah. But I'm not saying it's easy, Stephen. Yeah. I'm not telling you that. Yeah, for sure. Well, Amina, I've really enjoyed having you on the show, and this has been a very insightful conversation. But before I let you go, I'd love to ask you, what's coming down the pike for you next? What do you have coming up? Oh, wow. What is coming up next? I am doing How to Fix a Broken Record events. So I'm traveling and taking the content from the book and taking it to stage, which has been just an awesome journey for me because I I write so that I can do things on stage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Some of my other author friends are the other way. Mm -hmm. They they love the writing and then they're like, oh man, I got to go do the stage part Mm -hmm. where I like hate having to be alone in my office Mm -hmm. wrestling with the words, but I do it so I can do the stuff on stage. (laughs) So yeah. Um, so that's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. And I've actually just recently launched a podcast myself. Awesome. My new podcast is called Her with Amina Brown. And I'm basically endeavoring over the next few seasons to uh, interview women mm-hmm. on different themes. So the theme for season one is body. And I want to sort of take whatever the theme is and play around with as many different meanings as possible. So it's been a really great a learning journey for me and just an opportunity to elevate the voices of women and of women of color. So that's something really exciting that I'm doing and I'm hoping to do more her live events as well. Well, Amina, thank you so much for joining us on Makers and Mystics and I've really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to uh, seeing what comes down the road for you next. Absolutely, thanks for having me, Stephen. Thank you so much for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Music was provided for this episode by Amina Brown on her spoken word albums Resurrection and Breaking Old Rhythms. If you'd like to find out more about Amina Brown, you can do so at makersandmystics.com and in the show notes of this episode. If you're enjoying these conversations, please consider partnering with us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash makersandmystics. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. There's beautiful in all of us.